Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today, we'll be welcoming on Allison Alsop. Allison is a co-founder of the New Orleans Writers' Workshop, and she also teaches and coaches fiction writers of all levels. Her short stories have won multiple awards, including those from A Room of Her Own Foundation, New Millennium Writings, Philadelphia Stories, and Dana Awards. She was shortlisted for the 2019 Manchester Fiction Prize, England's largest short story competition, and her story Old Houses, first published in the New Orleans Review, was selected for the 2014 O. Henry Prize Stories. Hello, my name is Allison Alsup. And for about 18 years, I've made New Orleans my home. I wanted to thank David and all the staff at WRBH for reaching out to me and having me on the show. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. My writing often tends towards historical fiction, and I'm currently at work on a novel set during World War I. One of the difficulties I find, perhaps the major difficulty with writing a novel or at least attempting to write a novel, is that when you're working on one, you feel as though you've always been working on a novel and will always be at work on the novel. And eventually you're fairly certain that either you'll die or perhaps fall into a coma before you finish it. So writing a novel is this very long process of tinkering, of discipline, slow build, And while it can be really gratifying and satisfying to watch something grow and you can develop a real intimacy with the setting and the characters and the themes and to know that you can stay with something, all these things are good. But there's no doubt that writing a novel is a case of slow and steady wins the race. The difficulty I find is that what happens when you don't really feel like being the tortoise? What happens when you don't really want to run a marathon with your writing? And what happens when you really just want to be the rabbit or in a mad dash of energy, dash towards the finish line? So today, what I decided I wanted to talk about was not the novel that I'm trying to write, but this other kind of writing that I occasionally do and that writers call very short fiction or flash fiction, sometimes they call it microfiction. And while there's no set word count for this kind of writing, it's generally that pieces are under a thousand words. And when they hit the 500 word mark, if they're 500 words or less, that's generally when we call it flash fiction or microfiction. So the pieces that I'll be sharing with you today, I have a few, they all clock in more or less at about 500 words. And they'll be a mixed bag in terms of their settings and their themes. Though when I looked over the pieces that I chose for today and have about four, the characters all seem to be very much younger than I am now. They are children and teenagers and a 20-something. Before I get to that, I wanted to talk about something really briefly, which is that people often ask writers where they get their ideas from. And when I get that question, I always think, heck, Uh, I think you should tell me because I have no idea. The reality or the short answer to that question is that ideas can come from anywhere and they come from everywhere. Other books, movies, a song. And perhaps this is often true from one's own life. Not to say that we're taking 
word for word or fact for fact, something that happened to us when we were were younger. But often the stories can be inspired by the general experience of something, often something that is still unresolved in our mind. Other times it might be a character or an image that comes into my head. And some of these inspirations are gone almost as soon as they arrive. They, They flit in, they fleet out, but others stick around. And these are the ones that I think that writers tend to write about, the loiterers, if you will. Sometimes what inspires us is nothing more than the language itself. In other words, it's a voice or a tone that somehow is whirling around in our head. And the piece I'm about to read began as a memory, um, both I should say as a memory, as a young would-be writer in Boston when I was in my MFA program there. But the story really didn't find its arc until the actual language itself found its form. This one is called Artichokes. See them, two figures in the stop-and-shop parking lot. See the sun slant over the pocked concrete, how it soaks their smooth faces in gold. See her lift her chin towards its glow the last she fears for months, knows she misses California's warmth like a lover. Know it is a Saturday or Sunday, four or six in the afternoon, late September or early October, too soon for the russet leaves to have fallen in the common, too soon for him to be wearing the tweed coat billowing about his narrow waist. Hear her think the coat makes him look like a peddler. No, She finds this endearing. See him under the sedan's raised trunk, his shoulders slightly curved. See how in her comfort heels they stand eye to eye. Know it will be months before he unfurls himself to reveal that he is in fact three inches taller. Hear his offer to drive her home. Know it is the first of many offers to come. Understand that after a year of hauling groceries over snowy sidewalks and turnstiles, his sedan appears like the row of of white grocery bags within, like the swollen sun, a miracle. Hear him say, you didn't get the artichokes. Hear her silence. Hear him say, but you said you liked them. Know that she briefly did take the small jar from the shelf before putting it back. Recall that three days before, he'd taken her to a Greek restaurant where they'd shared a salad with artichokes. Know her poverty follows her around the city like a filthy, grunting animal. Hear her tell herself the artichokes do not matter, that there are bags of food sagging with abundance, that he is driving her home, that he has touched her hair saved her from loneliness. Hear him say, but I want you to have them. See the ripple under his tweed sleeve. See his uncurling fingers, the jar in his palm, the oil bubbling beneath the glass. See her attempt to comprehend how the artichokes have come to be in his hand, his coat. See her look towards the store's entrance, certain of finding the pink-faced security guard. See there is no one. Hear her say, what if you'd been caught? Hear him say, I've never been caught. No, she wants the jar, the manicured hands that took it, 
No, the winter before, her first in this snowy city, she stole two pairs of thick tights from the department store where she now works. Understand there's never enough money, even with the scholarship, even with two jobs. Hear her think the artichokes are not like the tights, that he could have easily charged them like he did the Greek salad or before that the gourmet pizza at the bistro. No, she's seen enough to know. The German sedan, the apartment shared with no one but himself. Hear him say, take them. Hear her think he is practiced in the deceptive arts. Know this idea like the peddler's coat in chance. See her hands waver, then reach. I got into the annual habit of writing a new piece of flash fiction, and sometimes more than one piece, about six years ago. And no doubt I was attempting to write a novel then as well, and needed a break when I came across a writing contest for flash fiction. And I thought, well, this sounds like a good excuse. The contest was out of St. Louis, a magazine called River Sticks. By the way, they continue to run this uh, same contest. And the deadline always comes at the very end of the year. The winner gets a cash prize and a case of Shafly beer, which I am not familiar with, but there it is. And the rules were just simple, that the stories had to be 500 words or less, and you could submit three pieces with your entry fee. So I wrote for that contest specifically, and I managed to carve out three new stories in the space of just seven or eight days. Now, I'm a very, very slow writer a tortoise among tortoises. So you can imagine there was this frisson of excitement for me and this boost of confidence when suddenly I had completed something from start to finish in just a week. And not only just one something, but actually three somethings. I don't think I'm sharing any breaking news when I say that writers, including myself, can be a pretty neurotic bunch. As writers, I think the most important for us, uh, the most important thing for us is that we keep writing. And so we got to do whatever it takes to keep us at work on the page. Sometimes that might be a routine or a ritual. Um, Some people give themselves pep talks, caffeine, chocolate, whatever it is. And that push has to come from within ourselves. Since chances are there's no one knocking on our door and saying, hey, we're getting pretty anxious out here. When are you going to finish that novel? So if you hit a burned out spot or find yourself as a writer lagging and suddenly you've got this choice between either giving up, throwing your hands up in the air, putting your head in the oven or turning to a different type of writing for a while because this feels like the thing that you can manage, the thing that you can face, then I'm all for making that switch. So sometimes contests and especially those for flash fiction, right, have been that incentive and given me that specific but inflexible deadline I needed to finish a story. And chances are very slim that I'm going to win. Maybe one out of 100, maybe one out of 300. But to me, the entry fee is worth that trade-off in order to be able to complete something. For the record, I haven't won that contest out of St. Louis And perhaps, if I'm being optimistic, it's better for me to say I haven't won that contest yet. But I did come close once, painfully close, and I took second place. 
By the way, no big cash prize or case of beer for second. But the piece was published, and I'm going to read it for you in just a minute. It's called Maquis. Maquis is the French word uh, that they used to call resistance fighters during World War II. And the word Maquis comes from the name of a low-lying shrub that's common in the south of France. And this is where the resistance fighters there would have hidden themselves in those bushes. It's a bit like their version, if you will, of jungle warfare. Yesterday, when I was looking over this piece, I hadn't seen it in a long while. And being the compulsive revisionist that I am, I made a few slight modifications or add-ins. So for the interest of full disclosure, Maquis is actually not 500 words or less. It's 548 words. Here we go. Maquis. It was November. School had already been boring for weeks. The clouds stained everything gray. The buildings, the sidewalks, the pigeons in the square, the Vienne River that flowed silently through town, the dining room wallpaper, his mother's lips, the potato soup in his bowl. Nothing ever happens in Limoges, Rene announced at dinner. His mother tutted, rolled her eyes towards the heavens. If you want excitement, his father said, go live in Paris, or maybe with the Arabs in Marseille. We live in Limoges, Rene, because nothing happens here. Or maybe you'd rather have the war back. His parents talked about the war as if it had ended in their own youth, not five years ago. Rene thought of his new friend, Guillaume, whose father had been in the resistance, a maquis. Or so Guillaume said. Rene hadn't believed him, but Guillaume swore he would show proof when Rene could be trusted. Rene was disappointed. He wanted to see a German finger, an ear. Still, he admitted the line about trust sounded like a maquis. You weren't with the maquis, Rene asked his father. Show some respect, his mother choked. Your father is a great man. Rene's father was a plumber who believed a nation should be judged on the quality of its pipes. I'll handle this, Chantal, his father said, and sponged the last streak of his soup with his bread. This is about that new boy. You see, after a war, everyone's a hero. You know what a hero is, Rene? A fighter. His father's finger tick-tock, no, no, a dead man. Rene thought of how every Monday, their teacher, Père Luc, made them say a prayer for all the orphans. Guillaume wasn't an orphan, but his father was dead. But heroes are remembered, Rene said. So where's your friend's father now? Putting supper on the table? No, gone. Shot, probably. A pile of leaves for a coffin. But maybe you prefer I was dead, so that you could have a story about slitting throats or blowing up bridges. Rene stared at a drop of soup on his father's gray sweater. No, Papa. Prudent, that's what I was. The dishes rattled as his father's fist hit the table. I don't have a fancy education like you, boy, but I have common sense and know what prudence means. That night, Rene lay perfectly still with his hands crossed over his chest like an Egyptian mummy. Imagining himself embalmed and immortal helped him to concentrate. He didn't try to make out his parents' hushed voices in the next room. Instead, he thought of the save, 
the magnificent save Guillaume had made during recess. He pictured Guillaume's green gloves punching the ball as it blasted towards the corner of the goal. Guillaume's body falling towards the concrete yard. The green gloves had been his father's, Guillaume told René. His fathers had worn them while slitting the throats of Germans and blowing up bridges. His father had been wearing them when they found his body. Père Luc's brown robe billowed as he ran for bandages for Guillaume's cuts. And then René saw himself as he had been, frozen on the concrete, stilled by the red ribbons of blood streaming down his friend's shins. For many people, I think the challenge of writing is about coming up with more to say, more ideas, more words, more details. With flash fiction, it's, of course, the opposite. You use up those 500 words pretty quick. I think the difficulty for the writer with flash fiction is that you still have to deliver a complete story within this super spare framework. You still have to give the reader setting, character, plot, detail, and the all-important arc or development that signals a shift within the character. Sometimes characters have to face up to challenges and make very tough choices. Sometimes these moments feel more quiet in a story, and the shift is more about a realization or an epiphany, perhaps a changing view or moral stance. Yet whatever that shift is, and whatever happens in the story, we do have to sense as readers, as the audience, that this shift matters to the character, that this story the sequence of events matters to the character and that they're invested, that they have stakes in this story. Sometimes these stakes and shifts mark very big milestones in life, even life or death circumstances. And sometimes those moments are much more subtle, but they should matter all just the same. The rub is, of course, that you have to somehow pull this off in 500 words or less. I should also say that even though a story may only end up being 500 words as a piece of flash or microfiction. It doesn't necessarily begin that way. It certainly doesn't for me. And some of the pieces that I'm reading today began as eight or 900 words. I've even had some pieces that I've cut from, say, 1,200 words or 1,500 words down to that precious 500. That kind of economy is ruthless. But then that's also the point of the exercise. With a longer story or novel, I find that there is a lot more time for the writer to find his or her stride. There's also spots where I can get away with things and sometimes where I can hide. Not so with flash fiction. The very spareness of the story forces me to hone that message fast. Usually I find I end up pleading with the universe to somehow allow me to fit more than 500 words into 500 words. And so all the tricks have to come out the intentional fragments instead of a complete sentence, the three details that I have that get down cut to two, then to one, every extra and or then, every modifier like very or really, every extra or auxiliary verb. All these things have to go. So fiction writers aren't exactly poets, but I think that writing flash fiction comes really close. And like poetry, flash fiction may ask a lot of the reader to fill in those blanks of what might be suggested on the page or suggested by the words, but isn't necessarily overtly stated. 
and at the end to supply a lot of the interpretation of the piece's meaning. Sometimes, like poetry, flash fiction relies on a central metaphor for its shape and its meaning. In novels and stories, of course, these also employ metaphors. But I find that when the writing is really, really short, that metaphor feels more pronounced in the story and it takes on more weight. It can, in fact, be the entire element or the element that holds an entire story together. For me, this next piece, I think, illustrates that, or at least I've tried to. Uh, It's called Grip, and it draws on my native San Francisco Bay Area. Grip. He drove them into the city, speeding over the bridge. In Chinatown, he bought her a silk change purse. Later, it was flowers, a pair of beaded earrings in North Beach. She blow-dried her hair, wore lip gloss. They cruised Golden Gate Park, stopping to see the old men sail their model boats on the pond. They crossed the highway to Sunset Beach, dipped their feet in the breaking waves, and later he kissed her under the arms of the Dutch windmill. As summer passed, she noticed how his hands began to direct her, opening doors, pressing against the small of her back, her shoulders, all with the same attention he gave the steering wheel. She yielded. She liked his grip, its certainty. She knew he'd call because it was summer, school was out, and his friends wouldn't know. She didn't tell hers either, not even Gina. Come September, the calls would end. He'd casually wave between classes, ignoring her completely would be too suspect. She knew not to wear the earrings then. They didn't talk about applying to college in the fall or why he'd taken Gabrielle Ferretti to the prom. Instead, they talked about music, stupid movies, whatever passed in front of the windshield. Once he asked about Connor Mackey. Everyone knew by then. The popular senior had strangled his girlfriend at a party until she passed out, or almost. It wasn't clear. She told him how Connor had wept in front of the student disciplinary committee, how she'd been the only member not to vote for Connor's expulsion. She knew she wasn't supposed to tell him it was all supposed to be confidential, but he didn't press for details. Besides, she'd been outvoted, and Connor was at another school now. Rumor was that he and the girlfriend were back together. He took her to a restaurant with candles and a chalkboard menu. Afterwards, he drove up the twisting roads to where fog draped between the shingled houses and the street lamps disappeared under the trees. He popped the trunk, removed a plaid blanket. The house belonged to friends, he said, gone for the summer. The lot goes deep, he whispered, and tugged the waist of her skirt before starting down the slope. She waited, her fingers on the warm hood. The engine ticked. She imagined the weight of his body, the hard edges of his ribs on hers. It would hurt. That's what everyone, at least Gina, said. Not a lingering pain like a bruise, but more like a fat needle. He called her name. The night obscured his face. The earth smelled bitter, eucalyptus and oak. She looked at the pitted pavement, the buzzing street lamp, the tilted mailbox with its raised red flag. She needed to know exactly where to come back to. Stepping forward, 
Her heel sank into the dirt. She'd worn the wrong shoes. Her sandals with the heels on account of the restaurant. He called again, his voice now low and urgent, and she followed his shadow down the dark grass. One of the great pleasures of reading or hearing stories, very short stories, is that they can be ingested so quickly. And they can be consumed in just a few minutes while in bed or in traffic, riding the streetcar. Flash or microfiction, I think, is also an incredibly accessible way for us to first connect to a given writer's work. If you're interested in reading more about flash fiction or very short stories, I can let you know that there's plenty of anthologies out there that center specifically on this type of writing, including those that also function as guides for those who are interested in trying their hand at maybe writing their own piece of flash fiction. One that comes to mind is called Flash. That's Flash with an exclamation mark. Writing the very short story is by John Dufresne. His last name is spelled D-U-F-R-E-S-N-E. And I heard him speak at the Key West Literary Seminar this past January. He struck me as that very rare type of teacher who can clearly explain the very conceptual or abstract elements of storytelling that often mystify writers. But I will also say this, that in their shortness, flash fiction or very short stories should not be taken as a sign that these stories are disposable or superficial. In other words, flash fiction's short ingestion may very well be followed by a longer period of digestion. I think that for me, and probably for a lot of other writers, one of our greatest hopes, aside from landing a movie option for our work, okay, is the hope that readers and listeners will continue to think about one of our stories after it's done. That the piece will continue to resonate with the audience, even though there aren't any more words. I think we have pictures in our mind of maybe a, a reader or an audience member staring out the window staring into space, looking at the trees, and replaying those final lines in their mind. And with a great piece of flash fiction, you may think about it longer than it even took to read it or hear it. I don't think I'm a great writer, at least not yet, but it is what I'm working towards at tortoise-like speed. I very much appreciate this idea that the writer and the reader are like flip sides of a coin, that like the ideas that loiter in the writer's mind and that initially push him or her to create that story in the first place, that the story may stick around and loiter in the reader's mind. The last piece I'll read is called May the Troubles Soon End. Nadja presses her finger to the window, unsure if the haze is from within the bus or without. Both, she thinks. It's too dusty outside to open the window, too hot to leave it shut. On her side of the mountains, there are trees and fields, but here, only sand and scrub. Two rows up, the glass is gone, replaced by a garbage bag affixed with duct tape. The black plastic ripples with motion. In the other seats sit old men, broken men, women, 
blank-eyed children. Nadja tells herself she is none of these. Silently, she practices the lines Uncle gave her. She is on her way to meet a cousin in the capital. The basket is for her sick aunt. The driver calls out to extinguish all cigarettes. May the trouble soon end, he adds. May the trouble soon end, the bus murmurs back. The oil refinery rises from the plain. Its lights remain on, blinking as if transmitting secret code. Her brother made Dune work there before he left. Then the buses were clean and air-conditioned. Now the stacks emit nothing. Only the chemical smell remains. For eight months, Maydoon did not send word. Then one evening last week, he appeared in the front room. Like a soldier, he came without notice. Nadja and her mother had been in the garden, and the squash rolled onto the floor when she dropped her basket. Maydoon was Maydoon, but not Maydoon. He'd grown a beard, and his body. He kept bumping into things, the table, the stools, as if the house were too small to fit him now. He quickly ate two bowls without praying, waving off their tears, their questions. Not even uncle could know. For your own protection, he told them. They were the same words the police used the night they took their father. Later, Nadja found him alone in the dark. What's it like to fight, she whisper asked. Aren't you afraid? Go to bed. Tell me. Silence. And Papa? Nadja, Papa is dead. Don't tell Mama. Come morning, Maydoon was gone. Two days later, Nadja went to see Uncle. She knew about her father, she told him. She would fight. She had to. The bus slows at the checkpoint. She counts four soldiers. They are beardless and carry long guns. Surrounded by nothing, their camouflage uniforms announce themselves like banners. Perhaps it's what they want, to show they have no reason to hide. The bus doors open. Guns knock the dashboard as they mount the stairs. Perhaps they will ask for papers. Perhaps they will order everyone off and shoot them. The first soldier raises a thick hand. May the trouble soon end. May the trouble soon end, the bus chants. But here is what Nadja has learned. Not everyone wants them to end. They have grown used to the war, to who it allows them to be. The soldiers move down the aisle, pointing, asking questions, refusing the answers. Nadja fingers a tear in the seat, finds the crumbling foam inside. She tells herself she is not like Midun. She is still only Nadja and hasn't done anything yet. The basket is still a basket. But already she knows it's a lie, just like any other. That was educator and writer Alison Alsup. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. You can tune in on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thank you for listening.